The scripture reading is Jonah 3, 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This passage is a challenging one in many respects. Uh, My intention today is to talk on the theme of repentance. And Bradley might have given you a heads up about that last week. He gave our people a heads up that I told them not to, him not to talk about repentance because I wanted to do it this week, and, but in, in jest, in joking, because these verses are all about repentance. But what is the nature of repentance displayed by the Ninevites versus the nature of repentance that we might be called to as we think of our faith in Jesus Christ. This passage is shocking on so many levels. It's shocking in terms of the object of God's mercy, Jonah, and the Ninevites. It's shocking in terms of what one commentator called an obscure prophet who from human perspective was no threat at all to Assyria calling Nineveh to repentance and them responding immediately, swiftly, from the greatest to the least, verse 5 says, the verse right before our passage. It's shocking in the threat of disaster, the impending judgment that's embedded in the message. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be Jonah going to Nineveh, an area well-known for their vicious, cruel, barbaric treatment of others, to tell them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It makes me think, just as an aside, as I think about this threat of disaster that Jonah proclaimed, of the real and perceived threats that are before us now, that are before the folks in this room right now, the real and perceived threats to our livelihood. I think of our national security. I think of the fact that there are so many people whose job it is to track phone calls and emails and internet chatter. There's so much I don't know about or I might just come undone. Whose job is it to decide when the nation is threatened whether that should be dismissed or taken seriously? The king of Nineveh took this threat seriously. Would we? I think of threats to national security. I think of threats to personal security. Things going along well and then a health scare. Things going going along well and then bad decisions catching up with you. I can only imagine the weight in this room. What competes for your attention with the word of the Lord right now as it was read. There are many things that press in. When your doctor tells you you have to change your lifestyle, the temptation is to do what? 
dismiss it. Ignore it. Regret the bad decisions you've made and resolve to do better. This passage doesn't call us to any of those options. Dismissing, regretting, or resolving. I think it points us to something far better. True freedom. True repentance. I am struck by the king of Nineveh's swift response. This leader of Assyria's, his swift response. Jonah comes. We don't know exactly the timing of things, whether the people began to respond. The emphasis here is on the immediacy of the response. There's not much delay. The people respond, and they respond in broad scope. The king certainly responds by doing what? Arising from his throne and removing his royal garment. He takes this obscure prophet's message quite seriously. Why? This would be like a little tiny nation that was no threat to us coming and saying, I'm taking you down. Now, we process that differently in our day and age, right? A day of terror, a day where many of us are on edge at any news report. But why did he respond so swiftly and dramatically to take off his robe? Historians speculate, commentators speculate. Let me speculate just a bit. This is the 8th century BC. Assyria was not at its height. It had faced many hard circumstances, battles, lost battles, revolts, natural disasters. There's documentation of earthquake, like a big earthquake, an eclipse. This was a superstitious people, a polytheistic people that might wonder which gods were mad at them or not mad at them. They were weakened, they were vulnerable, they were superstitious. They saw the sky blackened, the earth shake, revolts. Perhaps that's what was happening. So that when Jonah comes, and we don't know if these are the only words Jonah spoke. I'm sure Bradley said that last, you know, last Sunday. Perhaps he said more. Perhaps they even heard of how Jonah was delivered. We don't know. But they were ready to hear this message and perhaps feeling that they were already being undone to hear this prophet speak so boldly, the king had to act. Why does the king take off his robe? Well, we'll we'll get to the significance of taking off the robe and the sackcloth, but one word comes to mind when that king took off his robe, and that's humility. Humility. A phrase comes to mind, as the leader goes, so goes the people. Now, that's not very popular to my particular Western individualistic mindset, but many of my friends get it, and they get it strongly and quickly. Many of my friends in Boston. As the leader goes, so goes the people. He recognizes the threat. He leads in removing his robe. It's a display of humility, a display of his fragility and mortality, his weakness, and then he issues a decree. And the main thing I want to talk about today is how this decree points us to the nature of repentance. And I'm going to say probably multiple times over, I'm not sure what was happening in the hearts of the Ninevites. Going this slowly through Jonah has led me and Bradley to be less and less certain of what's going on in the heart of anyone, including me. (laughs) What's really 
going on in the heart of Jonah? What's really going on in the Ninevites? I think your pew Bibles talk about this being the Ninevites repenting. We hear that, some of us, who have been Christians for a while through our 21st century Christian language, it may not be a one-to-one correspondence. So let's go slowly. But I want to point out three aspects of repentance that we see hints of in this decree. The mourning, the acknowledgement of the evil ways, and the turning. That's just a beginning of the discussion of repentance. Repentance is something core to the Christian faith. It is worthy of weeks and weeks and daily reflection. But we'll get a conversation going today. What does this teach us about repentance? The decree goes out, the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Perhaps this is the superstition too. Why are the animals included? Did they really believe that the animals could somehow threaten God? They are freaked out, comprehensive in covering all their bases. Were the animals responsible? The king takes off the robe, a display of humility. He sits in ashes, perhaps. All of this, the the sackcloth, which was a coarse fabric that, that he would wear, and the ashes are meant to picture what's going on in the heart to take off the comfy royal garment, and I'm sure it was pretty comfy, and put on coarse sackcloth would be uncomfortable and picture the emotional discomfort that the king was experiencing, his grieving, his mourning over this impending destruction and the ways of the land. Repentance involves sincere mourning, sincere grieving. And I think here of what might really be going on in the hearts of the Ninevites, I don't know, but what the Apostle Paul says about mourning in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a stern, a firm letter to the Corinthians longing for them to be spurred to repentance, and he waited, hopeful that they would respond. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, mourned, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's important when we think about repentance to think about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. So as you confront your failures as a person, worldly sorrow is focused on you. Godly sorrow is focused on the offense before God. Worldly sorrow can have you bend in. I think of Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. Worldly sorrow unto death. Godly sorrow, as painful as it might be, is freedom. It's honesty. It's focused on accountability unto the Lord. So while I don't know the heart of the Ninevites, I see evidence of mourning. 
Uh, let me say as an aside, I would not be surprised and I will delight if I see every Ninevite here in glory. I mean, God's mercy is astounding. Well, I, I don't know what's happening here. I don't want to go too far one way or the other. As Bradley, I'm sure, said to you, oh, how we would rejoice and not be surprised if this were sincere repentance. But what is the passage actually teaching us? The mourning can be performance. It can be me-centered. Or it can be God-focused. Sincere repentance. So as we look at, uh, as we continue to look here and we see uh, the sackcloth and the ashes, the ashes perhaps picture the ruin, the desolation, the fact that we are ashes to ashes. We are hopeless. We are needy. We mourn. We grieve. Would that be sincere? The decree says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Implied in that is that the people would acknowledge that they were evil in their ways and that there was violence in their hands. And in this, I see a tough message for all of us because I believe the word of the Lord to all of us is that we are all in the evil ways violence been. By nature. Not a popular message. I came to faith as an adult and I did not like that message prior to place. I didn't want to believe that message prior to becoming a Christian. I think the trappings of humanism in the air we breathe is a humanism, right? The idea that we're all basically all right. Yeah, we do, we do stupid things. We do foolish things. But we're all basically all right. There's an inherent, inherent goodness in us. We just have to search within and unlock it. Not biblical. Humanism is a trapping that would work against our detection, our acknowledgement this day, this week, of our evil ways and the violence in our hands. Right? But so is social comparison. We live in a social media age, and the danger of the social media age is we weigh ourselves side to side, not vertically, to God's standard. We feel better than those around us, and we're content with that. Well, that's not God's standard. God's standard says all have fallen short of the glory of God. That means we're all in the evil bin. We all deserve the disaster. Now, there's really good news the other side of grasping that. But as you come this afternoon to church, do you think you're basically a good person who deserves to have a relationship with God? That you've worked your way to God? Do you think the Ninevites could have done that? The decree points out that there is mourning. There is acknowledgement of the evil way and the violence. Not just the offense, but who you've offended against, God. And so... Building off of this and what the rest of the scripture says about repentance, I want to encourage you that as you think of the topic of repentance, be very specific in what you acknowledge. General acknowledgement often isn't repentance at all. Ah, I struggle with my anger. Ah, I can be a little bit irritable. That is so different than me going to another brother and saying, hey, when I made that joke yesterday and we kind of laughed, something felt off. And I really thought about it. I was mad at you. I jested. I put you down in front of other people. It was subtle, but I don't trust my heart. I wronged you. Will you forgive me? 
I'll tell you, there's something incredibly beautiful in a church community when someone says something like that with tears in their eyes and the other is tempted to say, oh, come on, that was no big deal. I don't even know. I forgive you. And you know what? I've been pretty mad at you. And I've been pretending I'm not. I need to confess to you. Not I'm mad at you. But I've been gossiping about you. I have been working against your reputation. It is not innocent as I thought it was. I'm convicted. It's wicked. I'm a sinner. I need God's grace. I forgive you. Would our churches be places of mourning and specific acknowledgement of transgression, not just for our good, but to the glory of our Lord? We need Jesus right now, more than we possibly imagine. And our hearts are so deceptive, whether you've been a Christian for one day or 20, 30 years. There are things that I'm confident need to be confessed in this room, whether they will or won't. Now, there is wisdom. We don't want to be foolish. I think of situations like abuse. I'm not talking about that right now. Great wisdom needs to be uh, administered. The church can help in coming alongside folks who are in really tough situations. But the gossip situation, which I'm confident in this room, I, I don't have, I'm not a prophet, I'm just a person. I'm confident in it because I know the human heart. There are judgments perhaps in this room. Would they come to the light? One thing your pastor teaches me often is there is, it is always good for sin to come to the light. For the name of the Lord Jesus, for the reputation of Christ the King Newton, for the advancement of your mission. All right, I'm going, I'm going on and on. Mourning, acknowledgement, you are evil by nature. You are violent by nature. And to say you're not is to diminish the work of the cross. Now, there's degrees. I'm not naive. You're not as bad as you could be. I'm not as bad as I could be. By God's grace, God is growing me. I'm not saying we're all doing all the same evil acts, but you don't have to be defensive when the standard's vertical, not social media. Acknowledge the evil. Acknowledge the violence. Ultimately, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from, his, from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Mourning. Specific confession. Oh, I have to say this. I think of David's confession when he was confronted after the adultery with Bathsheba and conspiring unto the death and cover-up of his adultery, the death of Uriah. He says in Psalm 51, this, when I think about acknowledging, listen to this. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, God. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Humanism? Uh-uh. Social media? Get that off the table. And in sin did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He goes on to say, rightly, purge me. You can cleanse me. I can't cleanse myself. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Mourning, acknowledgement, 
confession, specificity, what you've done, who you've offended against, and turning. Four times the Hebrew verb for turn is used in verses 8 to 10. Twice with God as the subject, twice with the Ninevites as the subject. It simply means to change course, to turn about, to return, to turn back, to change course. And I will tell you, if you sincerely believe in Jesus, the picture of that is you having no interest going this way, God turning you around, throwing open your eyes so that if you've taken hold of Jesus and sincerely believe in Jesus, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. You have been turned about to walk what? A new life, a new lifestyle. Yet your tendency is to do what? To go back and enjoy the things of old. As Aaron said earlier, we need confession. Like it, It's in our liturgy for a reason. We need to hear every day about the rescuing work of God, his turning of us and what it means to follow. We need one another. We can't do that alone. It is to turn from the evil way, a life given over to me and what I want and what I think to God. And that's the question mark with the Ninevites. They were turning from their evil way. There was clear social reform. But were they turning to monotheistic worship of Yahweh? We don't know. There's so much. The passage ultimately isn't, it's, it's not largely focused on the hearts of the Ninevites. It's focused on the swift, overwhelming, abounding mercy of God and our need of rescue that he alone provides. Was it widespread conversion, revival? Was it social reform, what, social reform or both? I don't know, but I will tell you many commentators are skeptical that this was widespread conversion. And that's kind of the way I've always read it. So does that lead me to be shaken? No. We're going slowly through the book of Jonah, and I just have a lot more questions. And I want to be careful what I'm saying is happening here. Because I ultimately don't know. I know that it's not long before all of Assyria is wiped off the map in their wickedness. So that whatever reform happened was temporary. They would eventually take out a good chunk of Israel and be destroyed themselves. The emphasis is on the shocking mercy and compassion of the Lord. They did turn. That's what repent means. They did turn. There was social reform, and it could have been heart-level repentance, but there was social reform, and God mercifully, verse 10, saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Christian, do you view yourself this day as an utterly shocking object of God's mercy? That'll change the way you walk out this door. That'll change the way you view that difficult neighbor, that difficult boss, that difficult colleague, that difficult child, that difficult everyone. That'll change the way you view yourself. And it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to bring us there. We're pretty stubborn. At least I am. This passage leads us to the topic of repentance. I'm not sure about the depths of it in the Ninevites, but certainly we see important elements. And I want to encourage you that these are elements that thread through the scriptures all the way to Jesus' public ministry where he said what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
that's central to becoming a Christian, core to becoming a Christian, is turning from yourself to a redeemer. I am the problem. I can't regret my way out of this. I can't resolve my way out of this. I need Jesus. I need a king who is perfect and who can fix what I have broken. What, here's the central application for you today. What word of the Lord, and I'm just asking you to reflect, what word of the Lord, scripture, promise, book of the Bible you're avoiding, what word of the Lord has come to you? What word of the Lord are you struggling with? Man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's hard to repent if you're not spending time in the word. And I'm not trying to go legalistic and shame here. But so, why are you not spending time in the Word? Sometimes it's because you just don't want to hear. <laughs> you want what you want when you want it, right? And, and so you busy yourself. And you listen to all these counselors who are telling you what you're doing is great and ignore the Word of the Lord. That is freedom. That counselor you want. That counselor may ask you to do hard things, but only because he loves you and only because it's best. To the one who has been rescued by Jesus, the, the law is a lamp unto our feet. It is life as it's intended to be. Where might you need to turn from your evil way? Now, this is non-Christian or Christian. There's a repentance unto life when you first place faith in Jesus, and then there's the habit of daily, ongoing, regular repentance and faith. And I know Bradley teaches on this often. I know he does. I feel like I'm just beginning to understand what repentance is. Would I grow more and more and more in it? Would I teach more and more and more on it? Are you listening to the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord says, don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't cheat. Don't engage in immorality. The word of the Lord says, do love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as self. Uncle, I need confession and worship. Like, I need to remember that I can't do this. I can't do it perfectly. I get to obey now in Christ, but I cannot work my way to God through these commands, and I, I should take a long look in the mirror and ask myself, am I resolving to obey God's law and living in shame because I fall short and forgetting that God sent Jesus to live up to the law for me? As you hear of these commands, perhaps convicted, is your tendency to regret or to resolve or to take off the robe in humility? There's a pastor I really like. This is the last time. Well, maybe I'll say his name a couple more times. Bradley and I both read this particular pastor quite a bit. A pastor by the name of Jack Miller who says this about repentance. May God grant you grace to deepen in your repentance. Pray that he will do the same for me. <laughs> for repentance is just humility. Take off the robe. You're not all that. Sovereign self? Come on. Humility stands in the low place, not on the mountains of pride 
Therefore, humility gets much grace because grace runs downhill. The quote at the start of your bulletin from Sinclair Ferguson, I just wanted you to have that to take with you. Repentance, biblical repentance, is not merely a sense of regret that leaves us where it found us. It is a radical reversal that takes us back along the road of our sinful wanderings, creating in us a completely different mindset. We come to our senses spiritually. Ferguson is reflecting on the parable of the prodigal son who has squandered everything and is longing for pig food when he realizes he could at least be a servant in his father's house. I want to encourage you this evening, open the Bible to Luke 15 and read about the prodigal son, a powerful picture of the beauty of repentance and the overwhelming mercy and grace of God. Because when the prodigal goes home and is so sure of how his father's going to respond, he is way off base. The father runs to him, adores him, lavishes him with gifts, and is so excited he's home. What a picture of our regular, wait, who did I gossip? Okay. Wait, what did I do? Wait, where, when did work become too important, more important to me than God? Wait, are my kids more important to me than God? What's getting in the way of hearing the word of the Lord? That's good. That's not to be afraid of. That's not to be feared. It is easy to confuse repentance with remorse. I am one who is very hard on myself. And people might look at me and go, oh, you are so humble. And you are so quick to point out your faults. A lot of that is remorse. A lot of that is not God-centered. It's me-centered. And I need to repent of that in time. Gen gentle. A lot of people confuse repentance with remorse, just beating yourself up. That's worldly sorrow. A lot of people confuse repentance with penance. And some wonder if what the Ninevites were doing here is penance. We're going to change our actions to, a, to appease this God and all will be well. I don't know. But I know deep within me is a tendency to want to fix what I broke. Tell me what I need to do to make this right. What if you can't fix it? It's that bad. And the only hope is a God who would come to rescue you at the greatest cost. His beloved son who took flesh to dwell among us. The word who came and dwelled among us. Centuries after this king took off his robe, another king came and took off, metaphorically, I, I could say, a robe. Jesus, Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Son of God emptied himself. He took a body and a name, fully God, fully man. He emptied himself, relinquishing his rights in full glory in the heavenly realm to step into a world that was utterly opposed to him and humble himself unto the cross. Why? So that the disaster you deserve, Christian, would be relented of. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Oh, the uncertainty. The social reform and uncertainty. Maybe this will Oh, maybe this will work. You need, you, you have no you, need, you should feel no uncertainty if you have placed faith in Jesus because your hope is not in your social reform. Your hope is in his active and perfect obedience, his humbling unto the cross that he did without stain of sin. When you repent, you turn from 
self to joyfully cling to the God-man Christ, to cherish his rescuing work, to enjoy him. Repentance is an opportunity to marvel at the beauty of the king who displayed perfect humility so that he might rescue you, those who trust in him, from disaster, disaster that you deserved in the evil bin. No uncertainty, finished work. I just want to close by encouraging all of us, Christian and non-Christian, turn to him. He is that good. He is true security. If you've been a Christian for years and years and years, where might you get to turn again this day to him? Would that be, would, would that impulse to turn be the desire of our hearts and our hearts for our neighbors, wherever God has planted you in this community. Let me pray for us.